Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep Mrs. Manstey's View uh, by Edith Warden. This was first published in Scribner's Magazine, July 1891. It was her very first published short story. She submitted apparently three poems the same year, or maybe it was 1890. Um, And uh, I think one of them was published, and then this got published, and then it was a year before her next short story was published. She's best known as a novelist. Um, She is not my regular reading person, uh, although I find her life story more interesting uh, than, you know, her her output. She's kind of famous in the United States for being a famous novelist, right? I think she's famous for being a novelist. Yeah. Um, I think this is a pretty terrific short story. She was 29 when it came out, um, but it, it feels like the work of a, a very masterful hand, or mistressful hand, maybe. <laughs> I agree. I agree. It's it's subtle, fluent, eloquent, and deeply felt. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it. Uh, I was I bought this book at a uh, used bookstore called American Gothic, um, and it has gothic stories in it. And when I started reading it, uh, I thought, oh, um, I know where this is going, but it turned out. That's not where it was going. Um, but maybe uh, you would mind giving your gloss on what happens in the story for everybody who hasn't yet read it. I truly recommend that people do. And I am I'm a little sad that for us to have a conversation that will be meaningful for everyone, it's probably wise to give a, a summary of the story uh, because like you, although I wasn't uh, aware of the title American Gothic, so um, I didn't have that setting up my expectations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story takes a turn that I did not expect. It's not a shock, surprise kind of O. Henry ending, no. but it is, it's a different sort of an ending than one imagines will happen. And, um, I hope anybody who hasn't read the story and is moved to read it will try to to read it with that kind of freshness. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some people good at it. I I I have no trouble after reading reviews of then seeing the work or reading the work, but Mm -hmm. some people just avoid them. So sorry, folks. Um, Mrs. Manstey is her name is M A N S T E Y. I don't know if it's supposed to be a sort of reminiscent of mainstay. Mm. It's a, strange names in this. Um, Mrs. Manstay's view. The first sentence, the view from Mrs. Manstay's window was not a striking one, but to her, at least, it was full of interest and beauty. And it turns out that the nature of the view and the nature of the person who sees a view and values it is crucial throughout the entire story. Mm -hmm. It's not whether or not something does mean something, but whether or not it means something to someone. 
and we come to sympathize greatly with Mrs. Manstey, although it's a third-person narrative, as you can tell from the first sentence. Mrs. Manstey is a woman who's been widowed for 17 years. Apparently, she is comparatively old. She is in not very good health. She lives on the third floor, of which I think in this instance actually means the fourth floor in the European system where you count the first floor, the ground floor as not floor one to it, you know, floor one, um, in a boarding house, meaning that she gets her meals there as well as her room. It's a one-room habitation for her. And clearly the landlady, she's been there for 17 years, understands uh, her needs, uh, that is Mrs. Manstey's needs. Uh, we know that her food is brought to her on a tray. Mm-hmm. She has occasional but ever less frequent visitors. She isn't a very sociable woman, but she genuinely enjoys looking at her view, which to many people would just mean, oh, she's looking out into the alleyway that passes between two rows of houses, the backs of two rows of houses um, in Manhattan. Uh, at the last decade of the, of the 19th century, but not to her. She, she looks at the ailanthus tree that's growing there. She sees it from the top. Um, the ailanthus, by the way, not that Edith Wharton would know it, is uh, the tree that grows in the famous book, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Mm. And it is a symbol. It's called, another, and the other name for it is the tree of heaven. Uh, I mention that because Wharton quite feelingly describes one thing after another that Mrs. Manstey sees and how she knows that this looks a certain way in this season and that looks a certain way in that season and the 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 maid who feeds the parrot and the other maid who comes out and surreptitiously feeds a neighborhood cat and at the end of the alleyway that she the the line that she can see down um, she sees rising over other buildings the steeple of a church that sometimes catches rays of light and that that church seems to me sort of in in resonance with that ailanthus tree that she sees. And she sees magnolias and all sorts of things. It turns out that her landlady, Mrs. Sampson, spelled with a P, but I can't help but remember that Sampson in the Bible Mm. pulls down the building. Um, She doesn't even realize that there's a a magnolia tree out there at all. Um, Down the block, the, the facing block, Mrs. Black has a boarding house, Mrs. Black, Mm -hmm. and uh, the news is that she's going to build an extension to increase her clientele, obviously, right up to the property line and right up to the roof line, which will utterly obscure Mrs. Manstey's view, which has kept her happily occupied for 17 years, ever since she was widowed. Her daughter is off in California. She's alone in the world, not alone She's in society. There's there are people around her, but she uh, sees no one. She's not sociable. She goes and asks Mrs. Black not to build the extension. Mrs. Black humors her, but it turns out that she's going to go ahead and build the extension anyway. Mrs. Manstey hurries out one night and takes the kerosene that she uses to fuel her own reading lamp. 
and sneaks into the backyard to set fire to the scraps of tar paper that the workmen have brought over after they've just begun the process of making the extension. There's a fire in the middle of the night. Mrs. Manstey watches it from her open window. It turns out it does very little damage, but Mrs. Manstey contracts pneumonia. And ultimately, being carried to the window at the end of her life, she's able to see the glow of the church and dies with a smile. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you, my, my, uh, reading it in the, in that Gothic, um, American Gothic book, I, my anticipation that it was going to be a crime story, um, <laughs> and I was right, turns out it was arson, but I thought, I thought when I started to read it, I thought, oh, this is, she, her, her husband, um, she killed him and buried him. <laughs> <laughs> in that yard and she didn't want it and it turns out that's exactly the wrong way to read this story because that is absolutely not what happens and i was trying to figure out why i thought this um and i kind of have a couple of explanations in my mind because this is a very familiar story to me um but it's not a story i'd read before and um i think the reason it's so familiar is it reminds me of two other stories. One is um, a story called It Had to Be Murder by Colonel uh, Cornell Woolrich, um, who's famously had his story turned into a more famous movie called Rear Window, which is about a, a reporter who is confined to his apartment and spends all his time looking out his window and reporting on well or commenting on all the doings of the neighborhood all the neighbors and he spots a murder in one of the apartments and he's going to try and stop it but he's stuck in a wheelchair and it's it's very tense drama this is almost the most gentle arson story i can possibly imagine and in fact the arson itself oh in, so in, gentle in, 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 in the Hitchcock film, we actually see the murder happening right. in shadow. Right. But here, we don't even have a word saying that the arson happens. Mm -hmm. We see her go downstairs, and then we see her back upstairs. That's right. <laughs> and uh, and we also don't quite see exactly. Uh, I, I think in my second reading, I can see how masterfully or mistressfully the hand of Edith Wharton is in setting us up for the anticipation of what will happen. Um, but it also reminded me of a later, again, another later story by Catherine Mansfield that I believe we've done on this podcast, uh, or maybe not, um, Miss Brill, which is about a uh, elderly uh, school teacher or English teacher in France who's highly um, alienated from everyone around her, uh, largely because of her own personality, as we have here, and who creates sort of a vibrant inner world by looking at other people's lives. And ultimately, that is one of the tra most tragic stories I've ever read, because her life is just truly pathetic. Uh, whereas here, there's almost a, um, a beauty in her 
craziness. The other way of thinking about this as a gothic is that there is this crazy woman in, in the attic, right? The crazy woman locked away in her room. She's locked herself away in, in a certain sense. So when she goes to Mrs. Black and says, uh, I have $2,000 in the bank, I will give you $1,000 if you if you will stop, not build this this view, uh, ruin my view by building this extension on your house. And she, Mrs. Black, treats her like a crazy woman and says to herself or thinks to herself, um, this you have to be very careful with the crazy people and just go along with what they believe. And she does. And, of course, uh, Mrs. Manstey is kind of insane in a certain sense, but also completely not, I think. I would see this in a, in a way as as in part a commentary on gothic mm. literature this is anti-gothic mm-hmm. uh, right jane eyre uh, there really is a mad woman in rochester's attic mm-hmm. uh, he's locked away that wife whereas here the general understanding is that there's a mad woman a crazy woman but we know that she's not so <laughs> The everything is turned inside out. Rochester has locked away his wife and it's fire that finally changes the situation mm-hmm. here. It's fire that doesn't change the situation. And the woman has restricted herself to the upper floor. Um, in many ways, one can see this as a, a commentary on how a story could be told from the standpoint of the person who's misunderstood by the world. In that sense, this is a feminist critique of Gothicism in the same way that um, the yellow wallpaper Mm -hmm. um, is a critique of how men tend to misunderstand a woman's perceptions as being crazy and in so doing may drive them to death. And that is in part what happens here, except of course, it's Mrs. Black who wants to build the uh, the extension. It's not a man. I'm not mm-hmm. arguing it's inherently feminist, but I am suggesting that that putting it in a book of American Gothic is a strange and interesting choice because all the things you mentioned, Jesse, it seems to me, are there. But we're looking at the other side of each of those coins. I I I also think it's it's almost a fantasy story. Um, there's a story by Lord Dunsany that is really powerful to me and very moving um, called The Wonderful Window. It's about a uh, man who purchases a window that used to be in Arabia. Uh, He buys it in London. He he installs it in his his room that has no window. Um, And through this window, he views a whole other world, in fact, a fantasy world, with dragons and armies and castles and banners. And it's just a view. It's it's not like a television. It's just a view out a window. But it's to a world that's not his own. And he, during the day, he does his, you know, regular business working at a bookshop. And at night, he comes and he looks out his window. It's a very sad story about a man who's obviously completely insane. And uh, at one point, he, looking through the window, he sees the armies of an invading 
country attacking his his city, the city that he this this castle, this beautiful golden castle, golden dragon city that he's loved and views as the most wonderful and beautiful thing, even if it's uh, not wholly real. And they find him dead, and the window broken. It's it's a very it's it's so interesting that I, I think about my own grandmother how much she spent how much when she was becoming the word I always think is moribund right and that's the mm-hmm. way I think of Mrs Manstey she's got gout in her hand she considers uh, I could move and then she says it's impossible the plants would die and I would die and the she is like a potted plant in a certain sense. She doesn't move from her room very much. She only goes out when it's very good day. Everybody comes to her. All her meals are served in her room. So for her to go across the street and talk to this virtual stranger who she knows from the comings and goings of the servants, it's quite a it's quite a deal. And she says to her, I'll give you a thousand dollars not to build this extension that's half of what money she has i did the calculations a thousand dollars is about uh thirty thousand dollars today it's it's not nothing but it's not enough to stop somebody building an extension on the house um she also doesn't take her seriously but i was thinking well thirty thousand dollars or sixty thousand dollars to which which she has in the bank or two thousand dollars in in the story would be enough for her to get out to California and be with her daughter or to find somewhere near her daughter that she could have that hen house and a garden, some sunlight, right? That's her complaint is she never had a window with sunlight. And she's like a potted plant in my view. And and so when this extension threat comes, it's a threat to her 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 being. And she tries to deal with it a couple of different ways. Neither of them works out. And just like her plants in her previous home with her husband, who she didn't murder, <laughs> was uh, they died. And it's a it's a very beautiful, internal, touching story. Um, but it's it's also rather tragic. It is. Um, it is. I think we we care for the delicacy and aestheticism of Mrs. Manstey, her humility, her her loneliness, her. She she doesn't seem antisocial and misanthropic. She's just happy to enjoy the world around her. Mm-hmm. She feels good about the servants she see. She sees who do good things. She feels bad for the parrot who goes without seed for two days until on the third the servant remembers the parrot. She's in many ways kind. She's just observing and glorying in everything that she sees, which is a wonderful characteristic. She enjoys the rainy days, the cloudy days, the sunny days. She finds something of beauty in virtually everything that she sees. um, And she doesn't harm the world. I think we do come to appreciate her very much. Through her, I think the story also reveals something about the the relationship between life in New York, which is Wharton's great subject for all of her career, 
and nature. Mrs. Manstey, as you mentioned, had wanted maybe to someday, she and her husband had talked about it, have a place in the country with a garden and chickens. I think that is replaced for her by the Elanthus and the parrot. Um, so if you think about where she sits on an island, a populated island, um, which we know is growing, that's the point about the extension, a point about the extension, she had a, a dream of nature. Then she had a dream of tamed nature, um, a, a farm. Then she has a dream, uh, then she has a reality of a confined nature, which is the observation that she's able to enjoy of the yards, um, the gardens, if we use the British term for it, the yards behind the houses. And ultimately, this is going to disappear entirely. So the smile that she has on her face the day that she dies mm. is a smile that comes from the last possible view of the tree of heaven and the steeple. And only on that day, we're told, once she dies, then do the, the workmen resume putting up that extension. It's as if the work of the boarding house, the crowding of people onto the island, the, the populating of the city stands in contrast to first unadorned nature, then farms, then gardens, then some little bit of it to be kept in a cage like the parrot or the single tree in the backyard. And she's been able to keep that at least as long as she is there to have the view. But to us, the fact that she's smiling, I think we think at the end, at least I do, I'm glad that she was able to smile till the end. I know she would not have been able to smile any longer. And all of the things that she's able to see as beautiful, I have to recognize are being ground up, used and obscured by modern commerce. I I completely agree with you. I, I, I want to point to some of the beautiful um writing techniques that Wharton employs here. One, uh, I didn't notice them, of course, the first time I read, read it, but I, I, and thinking about how symmetrical parts of it are, um, it really stands out. Early on, um, we get a description of what she sees from her window, and it's in the second sentence. Mrs. Manstey occupied the back room on the third floor of a New York boarding house in a street where the ash barrels lingered late on the sidewalk and the gaps in the pavement would have staggered Quintus Curtius. Uh, I believe this is a Roman historian. I'm not sure why it would have staggered him, but I'm more interested in those ash barrels. So I didn't know what ash barrels were. I didn't even know uh, if they were made out of ash like ash wood or <laughs> they were for ash in fact i thought they were made out of ash wood but i looked it up and apparently in new york back then everybody had ashes in their fireplace that needed to be cleaned out and hauled away and so basically they're rubbish cans or garbage cans um 
But those barrels, or at least barrels themselves, show up later. Um, when the when she fails to get uh, Mrs. Black to halt the workers from coming, they are outside and they're looking uh, as they're tearing down the the uh, porch. They mention, uh, don't put your matches anywhere near those barrels. They'll catch fire. They're full of paper. And of course, this is what gives Mrs. Manstey the idea to burn down the house. I mean, it's it's kind of insane that she's willing to burn down a house to save a view. Is she Is she not concerned about the people who live in that house? Is she not concerned that she'll be murdering people apparently that's not important to her <laughs> but she doesn't think about it she it's it's a threat to her life that's what that's the only way i can imagine it possibly being is that it's a threat to her being that if her view is destroyed she will die it's her only way of surviving she tries to buy her way out of it it won't work she's treated like a mad woman and so she acts like a, a mad woman when given this suggestion. So those ash barrels show up early. There's another one that shows up early, the doctor. We get told about the doctor and his his curtains. I don't know that it's the same doctor, but I would assume that it was. Um, he has these terrible mustard-colored curtains. And, in fact, he shows up twice. Um, and that color, mustard... Um, shows up again and again. The, the colors in here are amazing, and the vi- the views, the descriptions, and the loving description of the views. Um, the horse chestnut lifted its candelabra, buff and pink, and blossoms above the broad uh, broad foliage. Those workers, one of them stops and plucks a magnolia blossom, sniffs it, lets it fall. The other one comes by and walks on it. This is not. We don't no we aren't told what mrs manstey thinks of this but we know absolutely that's her and the fact that he he took a moment to smell the blossom that is even more tragic because nobody does that except for her she's the only one who really appreciates all the little things that she sees from her window even these ugly things like the ash barrel staying out too late it's quite striking how well put together this is for anticipating what is to come. I think that I'm sorry, am I interrupting you, nope, Jesse? That's uh, that's where I'm going is I'm just seeing how you know, we are set up so that we don't even think about what she's doing, which is essentially going to murder a bunch of people in a house in order to satisfy her idea of what should be outside her window. So that, that was my first anticipation, is that she's, she's, willing to, uh, she's willing to do anything to prevent someone else from impinging on her life. And I'm right, but I come to sympathize with her so much, because she doesn't sympathize with the people exactly. She sympathizes with what she sees of reality, which is whenever somebody comes and visit, she can't help but look out the window. She's barely attentive to what they're saying. And this is both tragic and also kind of beautiful. 
You know, there it is indeed. Um, the this doubling, the things we see in the beginning, we see again at the end, and so on. Um, this carries over to the the meanings of the things, like the alanth is never being called the tree of heaven, but but it is. And obviously, Wharton is expecting people to know something about the botany, or she wouldn't be able mm-hmm. to use words like decentra, mm-hmm. um, right? Which I mean, she she does, and uh, we get the technical term for lilac. Rather than extolling the perfume, she just gives us the technical term and no and the knowledge that she enjoyed it when it bloomed. Um, she is a mainstay in some important way, but the title of the story is to me the key doubling. Absolutely. It's Mrs. Anstey's view, and it's how she looks at things as well as what she sees, and we see what she sees. And we can come to understand how it is that um, that she has that view of what she sees. And I believe that we come to respect it very much. But there is, in fact, a third thing that I think is very important. There is another, just as the word lilac isn't uttered, but nonetheless, the lilac is there. There's another view Another word for view that seems to me to to work in the background here. The other word for view is prospect. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so not only is this is this Mrs. Manstey's prospect. You know, what she can see out the back, um, but it also tells us something about Mrs. Manstey's prospects. What is the likelihood of someone who is satisfied with little to simply go through life harmlessly and enjoying nature? What is the prospect of such a person thriving in our materialistic world? And as you say, she's like the plants. And we get a long description of her lack of success in keeping any plant thriving in her her window. Um, She needs the view she needs the sunlight to have positive prospects and she doesn't get it um and she's not going to get it the a question is raised about the relationship of individual to society the husband dies the daughter moves away the people who are around her turn out not to interest her that much and they don't interest she doesn't interest them that much But what does society owe and what do we owe to society? Sadly, in this in this story, Mrs. Manstey gives all that society asks of her by turning over a little bit of money on a monthly basis. Yeah. And if that's all that society wants from us, it's no wonder that people die alone. At the end, you have to feel happy for her to be able to die alone with a smile because most of us would not be able to do that. Finally, I think she has, in some ways, an admirable view. Mm. It's, uh, it's, she got one more day with her view. Yes. So for her, there was always more to say. And remember, 
You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep. Thank you.